Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Sentner Geology Podcast, Episode 63, Near Trench Magmatism. What? Thanks for listening. Well, I doubt that phrase means much to you. Near trench magmatism, you can kind of guess what it is. We know what an oceanic trench is. We know that's uh, locating subduction. Uh, and we know that magmatism or generating uh, generations of magma and, and uh, feeding volcanic arcs, we, we, we know that from Geology 101, for goodness sake. But there is this concept of explaining some magmas being generated much closer to the oceanic trench. It's on the continental plate. It's on the overriding plate, but it's very close to the trench. And I'll give you some examples in just a bit from Alaska and also I think a little bit in Washington, although I'm a little fuzzy on where those are at the moment. Uh, but locating and then talking and, and uh, putting into context these near-trench magma t- uh, magmas is, is the plan for today. And it all uh, centers on this... Uh, New topic that I'm I'm sinking my teeth into, basically, f- uh, the Pacific Northwest 50 million years ago ish, which is kind of what I promised last time. If you were with us last time, I was saying that I'm I'm slowing down. I'm no I'm no longer kind of uh, running through the exotic terrain live stream recaps. That's pretty much done. Probably good news for you. I don't know, and. Uh, that exotic terrain live stream series in mid-December, as I was wrapping up the A to Z uh, live streams, uh, ended about 50 million years ago with the arrival of the the last terrain to come in and essentially, quote-unquote, finish the job of building uh, the Pacific Northwest. That was the arrival of Celestia, and the last episode was Celestia and Yakutat, so we talked about having sort of a uh, a mirror image or more of that large igneous province up in Alaska. Okay, you remember that? Okay. So I want to continue with those kinds of thoughts. Uh, I listened to the audio podcast and jotted down a few more questions for myself. And then I finished the live stream series uh, on my computer, and I reminded myself of what else was in that Celestia. I think that was session Y. And it got into this concept of near-trench magmatism, which I, I kind of rushed through because I was running out of time because there was so much packed into that Celestia live stream episode. And so I'm really slowing myself down and really trying to think about that stuff. And the next step for me personally is to go find those papers I'm old enough that I like uh, having printed copies of papers, PDFs, so that I can sit on a nice sunny porch and uh, um, have a little cup of water and uh, or, or coffee or whatever, and uh, just kind of go through that stuff. But I, 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 I like, I like the setting of our porches. What? What am I talking about our porches for? Well, I don't know. It's springtime, man. I mean, it's late February, but it's starting to feel like spring. We've got highs in the 40s Fahrenheit here in Ellensburg, Washington, and we have sunlight past 5 p.m., for goodness sake, and and you uh, you have uh, a cup of coffee in the morning, and there's sun coming in the, the porch at 7 o'clock in the morning, for goodness sake. So um, that's part of this, actually, because I, I, I kind of have this habit of once the front porch or the side porch uh, becomes a nice, pleasant place with sunlight, 
that kind of cues me to start doing new stuff. Weird to say. And so if you recall, that's the plan for this audio podcast. I'm flipping. I'm flipping from recaps to the next few, I don't know how many, maybe dozens of live, of uh, audio podcasts here are going to be a first pass through stuff that I'm learning. And I think what I'm going to try to do is read a scientific paper. It's going to be part of this new collection of exotic, no, this new collection of uh, Eocene concepts for the Pacific Northwest. The Eocene is a a section of time, kind of a segment of time in the Cenozoic, in other words, younger than 50 million years ago, which is a, a time frame and a collection of ideas that I have not spent a lot of time thinking about, by the way. And I, I think you remember saying last time that uh, I want to just kind of do that research and development sharing now as opposed to after it's all polished and finished. And you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I kind of kind of been... You know, these episodes have been fine. Like, why are you changing? Why, why, why am I going to get all this stuff that you don't even know what the hell you're talking about? Well, that's a hallmark of this series, isn't it? I, know, I rarely know what I'm talking about. But I, but I do have some data to share and some evolving ideas uh, to share with you. And I hope that that will, con- I know that that will continue. But uh, there's, there's a shift I'm in the preamble section, by the way. That's 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 par for the course. And one other uh, preamble comment before we begin talking about near trench magmas. It's uh, it's one of my favorite times of the year, late February, early March. I'm a sports fan, so I, I've been listening to a college basketball podcast, which I enjoy. As a couple of writers, and they've started. Uh, reading their Apple podcast reviews at the end of their shows. So I know that you have different formats that you're different platforms or whatever. I don't even know the right word. I know some of you listen to this on on Spotify. Some of some of you go to my website called nickzentner.com and you just click on it right there and listen to it on your laptop, I guess. Others go through Apple Podcasts. Other goes through uh, whatever. I don't even know the other names. But I think I have a request for you. If you do listen to this podcast and you enjoy it, I guess even if you hate it, uh, I think I'd like... Hmm... I think it's clear, I hope it's clear that I make no money doing this. There, there is no uh, long game here. This long, there is no long con where I do enough of this stuff and then cash in somehow at some point. That's, that's not my motivation at all, and I hope that you've, you're aware of that by now. It's just, it's just the pure joy of sharing stuff that I'm learning, and that's it. That's, that's my favorite part of the whole thing. I'm just sharing what I've, I'm no hero. I'm just... Keeps me alive, man. It gives me something to do. Kids are out of the house. What else am I going to do? I'm going to learn some geology and package it in a little little rough way and then share it. So what I'm getting at is I think I'd like you to, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, can you go and leave a review? And that 
again, sounds crass saying it that way. I know it's customary for people to do that. Hey, you know, if, if you like this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, a five-star review or a three-star review, and let us know how you feel, and it really helps the podcast. Well, I, I think that's a money thing. I, I think. I don't really know. And again, there's no money here, no money motivation. But I think taking a moment to leave a review would be helpful because I think it helps spread this thing. This I don't know. I've never really sat down and learned the podcast world. But I think it's possible that the more reviews are left, uh, the more likely it is people will find this if they're like searching for a geology podcast. I don't know. But here's a more specific request. Some of you have taken the time to email me and say where you are and, and uh, who you are and, and how you listen and why you listen and you know that sort of thing. Uh, I'd be most interested in that if you just left a quick couple-sentence review and just say, hey, you know, I'm John, I, I, I work at the mine, and I listen to these audio podcasts, you know, to, to give me something to think about as I'm, as I'm doing my uh, run or whatever. Um, or do my tasks, um, and and I think if nothing else, that would give you a feel, give us all a feeling of community. Uh, that's what I've one of the main things I've learned from the live stream series is that people chime in with live comments and they say where they are, and and uh, sometimes it gets to the point where they kind of are clear, you know, who they are and how old they are, etc. So, I think if there's enough of these Apple reviews. I might even read a couple of them. I don't know. I might. I might copy this college basketball podcast that way. But I, I think. I think th- that might be a nice way to build a little community where everybody's chiming in and saying where they are and 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 why they listen. Uh, and then before you know it, uh, there'll be a, a nice collection of those comments. And I think it will help the podcast. I'm not sure, but I think it will help the podcast. Uh, have a, a higher, a, a, a wider reach, I guess. And that's that's ultimately the goal, to get more people tuned into this. Enough. We're at the 10-minute mark, for Christ's sake. Let's go. Here are some of my notes from re-listening or listening to the first time. Oh, boy. Try again. Let's remember Celestia, last episode. Large Igneous Province. Built pretty quickly. An incredible pile of basalt on the Pacific Ocean floor beginning 56 million years ago, and those basalts still erupting at 48 million years ago. So even as the thing is accreting to the edge of the Pacific Northwest between 51 and 49, you remember this now? Even as Celestia is accreting, uh, there's still some eruption. But by 48 million years ago, the thing's done. Notes to myself. Did the Yakutat, which is identical 56 to 48 million year old basalt, and identical 41 to 51 to 49 accretion date, did that Yakutat accrete with Celestia here in the Pacific Northwest? And then was there some sort of major strike-slip fault that 
cut that accreted material in half, essentially, and sent half north to Alaska? I danced around that last time, but I think I'm a little bit more serious about that question. And as I've read just a little bit since the last time I was with you, I think the Queen Charlotte Fault, I think it's still called the Queen Charlotte Fault, by the way, not the Native American name for the fault. I think the Queen Charlotte Fault might be the splitter and the mover. And this is new to me because I assumed, up until thinking about it seriously, that Celestia drifted in and arrived, like many of these other exotic terrains. Well, I don't know about that. If Celestia is built on the Yellowstone hotspot, mm-hmm, and the Yellowstone hotspot is sitting right at the spreading ridge, this is last episode, okay, like Iceland, remember, okay, then I don't know if Celestia is actually moving towards North America as North America is coming in. Remember, you and I were hovered up above mentally, looking down on Celestia out there in the water, and then we had North America coming in from the upper right. North America was drifting from northeast to southwest and, and, and inching closer and closer to Celestia. I'm starting to think that's, that's the concept we want. We want a fixed Celestia straddling the spreading ridge. But I don't really think Celestia is drifting towards North America. I think it's fixed, and I think North America is getting closer and closer to it. Then, so essentially then we have North America plowing into this fixed, huge, large igneous province half of which is now called Yakutat and half of which is called Celestia, but it's all one loaf of bread when North America slams into it. Then we cut it. We cut the loaf in half by the Queen Charlotte Fault and half of that loaf of bread, that Vinman's loaf of sourdough, is going to be sent along the Queen Charlotte strike-slip fault, where it is still accreting in central Alaska today, the Yakutat portion, as it rides on the Pacific Plate. So that's new to me, and I think it's a little bit more refined from what we did last time, and I need to look more carefully into that. Uh, what else? What other notes do I have before we get to the near... Tr- we haven't gotten to the near-trench magmatism yet, and we're almost 15 minutes into this. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much bigger was that loaf of bread than Iceland is today? We used Iceland as a convenient example of a large pile of basalt that was fueled by a hot spot, Iceland I'm talking about, and it is straddling uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. But how much more material was in Celestia slash Yakutat? Or is it the same? I don't know that. I think it's safe to tie Celestia to the Yellowstone hotspot, and that 
Seletia creation. And you know, when I say Seletia, now it really means Seletia and Yakutat together. I got to come up with maybe another word. Maybe somebody's done this. I needed another name for like the pre-split loaf, if you're following me. But that whole thing started 56 million years ago, for sure. That's what the data says. There is no Seletia slash Yakutat basalt that's older than 56. Does that mean the Yellowstone hotspot did not exist? earlier than 56 million years ago? I don't know the answer. Did the Yellowstone hotspot begin 56 million years ago? And if it did, why? And if it didn't, what evidence would we have anywhere on the Pacific Ocean floor or in the, in the lower mantle? How would you try to find evidence of a Yellowstone hotspot that's older than 56 million years ago? And if you're new to the audio podcast, you're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Yellowstone's in Wyoming. <laughs> does, he mean, does he really mean Yellowstone hotspot when he's out in the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, I do. Go back and listen. It's pretty cool stuff, man. And the last note I have on that set of ideas is really kind of, I think, bumping to the top of my to-do list. I'm starting to think when I start teaching Eocene geology for the Pacific Northwest, I'm going to start with Seletia, start with the hotspot thing, but I think I need to do a survey, kind of a comprehensive survey of other hotspots in ocean basins, or other hotspots within the Pacific Ocean Basin. And looking carefully at those seamount chains and looking carefully at the history in the last, whatever, 70 million years or 80 million years. I mean, most famously, the Hawaiian hotspot and the Emperor Seamount chain and the 70 million years of plate, uh, Pacific plate movement over the uh, Hawaiian hotspot. Okay, fine. But I've always meant to look other places in the Pacific. I know that's been done. I know we have the bathymetry for many of these other seamount chains, but how about the Indian Ocean? How about the Reunion Hotspot? How about, I've never really sat down and tried to figure that out. And I think it might give a nice global context to how our Yellowstone Hotspot story uh, either compares or contrasts with other setups around the world. Okay, that's the end of my laundry list of Seletia slash Yakutat fragments of ideas. Let me go to my other sheet of notes from that exotic terrain session Y back in December, and we're finally to the topic at the 20-minute mark, good Lord. Near-trench magmatism. Okay, well, let's go right to an example, first of all, up in Alaska, where there is near-trench magmatism that has been mapped and has been studied by Daryl Cowan at the University of Washington, by John Garver, who's a former Cowan student at the University of Washington, and a few others. So I'm going to give you some place names in Alaska. They mean almost nothing to me, but they might mean something to you. Ready? 
there is near trench magnetism recorded at Sanic Island, Shumagan Island, Kodiak Island, heard of it, Resurrection Bay, and down to Baranoff Island, where Sitka is located. So I'm looking at a little cartoon that I had in that live stream. And if you know the geography of Alaska, and I'm sure most of you do better than I, those names that I may be mispronouncing, Sanak, Shumagin, Kodiak, Resurrection, Sitka, Baranoff, if you can visualize that mentally, we're, we're touring southern Alaska from west to east, essentially. One more time, Sanak, Shumagin, Kodiak, Resurrection Bay, Sitka, Baranoff. Can you kind of picture that? You're working your way along the coast of Alaska, starting in the northwest and kind of curving around down to the southeast. Kind of got it? All right, well, there are some magmas, which of course are now either uh, intrusive igneous rocks like granites or diorites, uh, and probably some volcanic rocks as well. But let's just call them plutons. Let's just call them underground magma chamber rocks that we're calling near-trench plutons. Again, I could just show you a diagram, and a picture's worth a thousand words, but this is an audio podcast, so here we go. There's an age progression to those plutons. And those locations are very close to the... Mm, very close to a trench today and was very close to a trench back in the day. Well, how long ago? Well, here we go. Sanak Island Pluton, 63 million years old. Jump over to Shumagin, 61 million years ago. Go look at the Plutons on Kodiak Island, 58 million years ago. How about over at Resurrection Bay, 56 million years ago? They're getting younger down to Sitka and Baranoff Island, 47. So here it is. There are near-trench plutons in southern Alaska that trend between 63 to 47 million years ago as you go from, I'll just say it, northwest to southeast. So as you go along the coastline of Alaska, here are these plutons that are surprisingly close to the oceanic trench, their position, and apparently also their chemistry say that they are not subduction-related volcanic arc rocks. I don't need to define that, I don't think. We, we've been at this a while. We know about oceanic subduction. We know about typical arc volcanoes like Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, etc., like the Andes, like the Cascades, like the Aleutians, etc. This is different. And these are magmas that I just didn't know anything about. Never even heard the term trench, near-trench magmatism, near-trench plutons. But that's what we're talking about finally right now. Okay, well, it's one thing to say you've got these plutons pretty close to the oceanic trench. In other words, the magmas are not inland enough to have them be a conventional subduction-related story. But then what's with this age pattern? Why wouldn't all those near-trench plutons be the same age if there's a subducting plate? Why would there be this really cool, 
Yunging to the southeast, between Sanek, Old Stuff, 63, and Baranoff Island, Young Stuff, 47. Okay, well, there's that's part of the story. Oh, boy, this is going to be a challenge, more than usual. Can, can he do it? Maybe. We'll get a start, at least, in this episode before we run out of time. I've mentioned to you that I'm excited to be part of a new research team headed by Michael Eddy at Purdue University. And hopefully, with the virus and everything else, uh, there can be some field work this summer in the North Cascades. And I will be out there, let's just say, with Mike Eddy, Stacia Gordon at University of Nevada, Reno, and Bob Miller at San Jose State. Those are the three uh, main research geologists who are on this big NSF grant, and they have grad students that will be mapping as well. And so I've been in contact mostly with Mike, the header, of the, the, the leader, or the head of the grant, uh, as he kind of uh, gets the team organized. And I mention that because Mike has been very helpful by email, uh, not only getting ready for that, looking at those plutons in the North Cascades, which are not near-trench magmatism uh, uh, bodies, but Mike has also, Mike Eddy has also been looking at this near-trench magmatism and thinking about changing ocean plate geometries. That's really the guts here. So if, if, you're, if you're losing interest, don't, don't leave, please. Please don't leave. This is desperate now. This is unbecoming. Please don't leave. The reason to study these magmas near a trench is to help reconstruct which ocean plates were where at a given time. And of course, if we can reconstruct details about which ocean plates are where at a specific time and what direction they're moving, if we can pin that down, which we can't do easily, by the way. That helps us continue to understand the narrative of what's going on offshore of the entire Pacific Northwest, all the way up to Alaska. Now, the further back in time you go, the more complicated it is, or the the less data you have, let's put it that way. So, you know, over the last handful of episodes, we've been back... What, you know, 100 million years ago, 120 million years ago, that whole sort of thing, right? And it's very difficult to reconstruct where the ocean plates were. We tried. We talked about all those different options uh, with Baja, B.C., et cetera. But Baja, B.C. Is, 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 in the, is in the works, is in the mix again with this episode. And that's how I'll try to spend the last, uh, I don't know, uh, 10 minutes of this one here. Cut to it. Everyone agrees that's been thinking about these near-trench magmas that the near-trench magmas are the result of a subducting spreading ridge. Now, was that a guess you had when you clicked on this thing? How do you explain magmas near the trench on the overriding plate, let's just say the continental plate, how do you make a magma without subducting an oceanic plate and doing the typical volcanic arc? The answer is, according to everybody, 
you subduct a ridge. You subduct a gap between two oceanic plates. So here's how Mike Eddy explained it to me, not in a condescending way, because it's impossible to be condescending. Well, that's not impossible. Uh, I don't know much. So he knows enough about me to know how to kind of phrase this stuff. So he laid it out in a very uh, logical manner. I jotted down some notes from his email. Here we go. The forearc is typically a cold place. Okay. Do you remember forearc? So if I'm describing, hmm, if I'm describing the edge of a continent, and if offshore we have a trench and we have subduction of an oceanic plate, the volcanic arc is about 100 miles inland from the oceanic trench, and that's the line of volcanoes. Think South America, if you like. And then if you are on the ocean side of that arc, that's the fore arc. In other words, that's the place closer to the trench, near the trench. And then the back arc is just like it sounds. It's the area to the, uh, on the, uh, away from the ocean, on the other side of the line of volcanoes. So uh, Mike's talking about this forearc, this place closer to the trench, the near trench. And he says it's typically a cold place because it's insulated by the subducting slab. That works for us, doesn't it? If we can picture this ocean plate, this big sheet of, uh, I don't know, this big sheet of metal uh, diving beneath the continent, that sheet of metal is going to prevent... Uh, heat from the upper mantle uh, to leak to the surface. It's a cold place. You're not going to get hot stuff until you get far enough inland, again, on average 100 miles inland from the trench, where you generate a bunch of subduction-related magmas. Okay, so far so good. Here, Mike continues to me, helping me, right, like a day before that, that live stream in December. However, if you have a ridge a spreading ridge intersecting the coastline. And basically, if you're subducting a ridge as opposed to subducting an ocean plate. So again, do you remember last episode? We had our spreading ridge that Celestia was sitting on top of, and the spreading ridge was oriented, I tried to describe it, the spreading ridge was oriented in the Pacific Basin about this time 50 million years ago, was oriented northeast-southwest, northeast-southwest, and here comes North America from the upper right. Remember this? And North America is drifting to the southwest. So we basically have this spreading ridge subducting directly so north um, southwest drifting north american continent and having a northeast trending spreading ridge diving beneath it's like the spreading ridge is hitting north america head on and what do you do with the spreading ridge you subduct it well that's weird you subduct a ridge How's that even possible? Like it's a ridge, like it's a big buildup of stuff on the ocean floor. Does that even go down? That's not the point. The point is we have uh, 
to the northwest and to the southeast from that oceanic spreading ridge, we have two tectonic oceanic plates, correct? And those two tectonic plates are not subducting right at that triple junction. There we go. Have I used that phrase before, triple junction, with you? It's just like it sounds. You can put your finger on the map where three tectonic plates are in contact. And what I'm trying to describe right now is the spreading ridge that we discussed last time, the spreading ridge between the Kula plate heading to the north and the Farallon plate heading to the south, roughly 50 million years ago, and here comes the North American plate. That's our third plate coming in from the northeast and drifting to the southwest. So where's the triple junction? It's at the exact point where the spreading ridge is starting to dive. What are the three plates? Kula, uh, Kula, Farallon, and North America. Hope you can follow this. We continue even if you can't. Mike, if you have a ridge intersecting a subduction zone, a slab gap develops and exposed to heat due to proximity of the upper mantle, which upwells through the slab gap. Okay, let's try. I'm going to try one more time very quickly. We have this snapshot in time where three plates are touching each other at the precise plate where the spreading ridge is beginning to subduct. The three plates again, Kula heading to the north, Farallon heading to the south, and North America heading to the southwest over the top. Two ocean plates and a continental plate next door. Mike is helping us see that when you do subduct that spreading ridge, you're not going to have volcanoes 100 miles inland from that. Because you're not subducting a plate. You're subducting a space. You're subducting... Um, you're subducting a place where there isn't any ocean crust offshore. And so now if we head inland from that triple junction, there is no volcanic arc to look at because there's no ocean plate subducting right there. But there is a bunch of hot material, a bunch of upper mantle upwelling to the surface, even though we're very close to the trench. There's a chance this might work for you right now. I'll say it a slightly different way. You know that I like to beat things to death, but there's a chance that this repetition will help. Normally, when you subduct an oceanic plate, you have hot Let's just say hot and cold. How about that? It, normally, when you have an oceanic subduction, a subduction of an oceanic plate, think the Cascades, you're going to get hot stuff 100 miles inland because you have to subduct that rigid ocean plate at a certain angle. And by the time you get down and you generate hot stuff and have that hot stuff come up and make the Cascade volcanoes, you're 100 miles inland. Here, Mike is helping us see if we're not subducting an ocean plate, but we're subducting a gap, a spreading ridge, that means we're going to get hot stuff come up to the surface less than 100 miles inland. We're going to get it pretty close to the frickin' trench, man. We're going to get some near-trench 
magmatism, the title of our episode today. So back to Alaska, the way to interpret those near-trench magmas from Sanek down to Baranoff is that we had a spreading ridge subduct beneath North America. Oh yeah? Where was the where was the spreading ridge subducting 63 million years ago? At frickin' Sanic Island. That's why it's 63 million year old near trench magma. Well, where was the subducting ridge subducting beneath North America? Sorry, where was the spreading ridge subducting beneath North America 47 million years ago? Where we have 47 million year old near trench magmas at Baranoff Island, further to the south in Alaska. It's going to get more difficult. So I've, I've just decided we're going to continue this in the next episode. But right now, I think all we can handle, and that includes me, eh, I'm one step ahead of you, but not that far ahead of you. I think for us right now, we find a near-trench magma body, like at Kodiak Island, 58 million years old, and we know that a spreading ridge was subducting beneath Kodiak, and that explains why we have hot stuff coming to the surface very close to the trench. I'll give you a little hint as to what's coming next time. You remember Baja BC? You remember we're moving pieces of real estate north. In other words, the North American plate is not static. The North American plate is not fully formed and rigid. The North American plate's drifting into our picture from the northeast. But if you're a Baja BC person, and we are in the time window of Baja BC, you're shearing off portions of the west coast of North America and moving them north while we're overriding a spreading ridge. So if you're thoroughly wide awake at the moment, maybe you can see how Daryl Cowan tried to explain that age progression of near-trench magmas in Alaska. And I'll finish by saying this. There's some near-trench magmas down here in Washington on the southern tip of Vancouver Island. And I'm not exactly sure which, which magmas those are. I need to refresh myself with Jeff, Tep Jeff Tepper's work, which I was talking about. Actually, that's how I'll finish. So I, I'm going to step back for just, just two more minutes here. Give me, would you? Um, I started this audio podcast just as an experiment. Uh, it was wintertime. Let's see, what was it? More A year and a half ago, maybe? No, two years ago? I guess two years ago, maybe. And I started doing them up at the school because we, we had a new building open up and I saw a little video tour of their building and they said, we have podcast recording suites. I'm like, oh, well, that'd be kind of fun. Maybe I can figure out how to do that. Well, the students are in there and uh, the, the mics are set differently and I can't get into the room properly and I can't get a key because I don't, I'm not on the staff of whatever. It's just you know, it's a mess. I learned some things from a couple of the staff guys there. They were very helpful, but it was it was just awkward. 
So I eventually started, I bought a microphone, and now I'm doing them from my home, as you know. But I'm sharing that with you to finish this episode, because looking back, the first, I don't know, 30 episodes, maybe, of this audio podcast are simply my Geology 101 lectures. And then last winter, I I finished that, just last winter, seems like 20 years ago, just last winter, before the pandemic, I was putting together new lectures that I was going to do downtown in Ellensburg and film them. And I had three audio podcasts on J. Harlan Bretts. I basically had written that lecture. I haven't done anything with it yet in, in the public setting, which I, I just totally forgot about until I was looking at those old podcast episodes uh, half an hour ago, or an hour ago. And the reason I bring this all up is because before the pandemic began and before I started doing all this live streaming, I was the last thing I was kind of thinking about was the demise of the Farallon plate. And then I had another one called the, the demise of the Kula plate. And I was, I was just starting to get into this world. Well, here we are almost a year later to the day. February 2020, I was thinking about this stuff, and then I just got sidetracked for the last year, like most of us have been sidetracked in a rather significant way. And so after doing all this exotic terrain stuff and everything else at home, I'm really right back to where I was a year ago. And so just sharing with you, I need to go find, maybe listen to those uh, audio podcasts again, uh, find a couple rudimentary videos that I put together with some, some animations that I was doing at a kitchen table. Just try to go back and, and remember where I was and then use all this stuff that I've been learning in the last couple of, well, the last year uh, to continue the train a-rolling. Dear listener, thank you for listening to this episode, uh, which was probably 10 minutes worth of near-trench magmatism and everything else was a a slow build-up, but you know what you're dealing with by now. Sometimes they're on task, sometimes they wander. Hopefully both serve some sort of role uh, in the greater universe. I genuinely appreciate your listening to this one. If you are an Apple podcast person, leave a review and, and give us a sense of who you are. That'd be fun to read. And I guess if there's review places at Spotify or other places where you listen, do it there and I'll find those eventually. But maybe I'll get to the point where I read a couple of reviews just so we can feel like we are a community instead of uh, an isolated pair of human beings wandering in the universe. Good Lord. Thank you for listening. I love you and goodbye.